Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. My guest this week is Irish Trinidadian author Amanda Smith. Amanda Smith, thank you so much for joining me on the Superbrain podcast. Your most recent novel is called Fortune, which is a really um, interesting title. The connotations around luck and chance and fortune. But then also there's obviously the double play on your book. It's about making a fortune. And I have to say, I love a book that takes me to another place. Well, this does two things. It takes you to another place in time. So the 1920s, but also it takes you to another place physically, to another country, Trinidad. And it's another culture. Very interesting for me reading this book, actually, is the realization about how little I knew about Trinidad. We've all heard of Trinidad and Tobago, and I would hear of it in the context of sports or in beauty pageants. But I actually realized reading this, I knew really feck all about the country. You know, I like a book also where I go and look something up. And that's really kind of around the flora and fauna. You talk about under the shade of the African tulip tree. And it's lovely to kind of be transported to a place like that where you can create new images of things. And there's another insect. Actually, that's relatively early on in the book, isn't there, that somebody gets... I don't know that she gets stung. Does she ingest the insect or goes in her ear? Down her throat. Yeah. And very scary. Jack Canyons. They're worse than wasps. They're a bit like a bee and a wasp, but they're worse than a wasp. So they're nasty. I had a look at them online. So the book is kind of filled with those, you know, it works on multiple layers. You you get transported. And then, of course, there is a riveting story. And this podcast on Mondays, I love to interview people about surviving and thriving in life. I think it's kind of relevant to the book and to your own life, because I think your life and your work and your writing are kind of interlaced and related. But I'm just going to read a little passage because I think it's so relevant It's just a kind of conversation here, but it's to me, it's a big kind of almost existential kind of piece just snuck in there. And I don't want to spoil the book really in a way, but Eddie Wade has returned from the US to Trinidad and is hoping to make his fortune by striking oil. He has no money, really, and he needs an investor and he has one of these fortuitous. So here's where fortune comes in again, a fortuitous meeting with someone who goes on to become his investor, Tito. So Eddie is sort of speaking here. He's talking about his father and they tell me he was on the mountainside when a stone fell next to him. Then the stones fell thicker. One or two were big, too big 
to be thrown by anyone's hands. Then he must have seen it was the mountain pitching stones at him. He ran towards the sea, bawling for help, ash and steam pouring out. Lava trickled down and buried the crops and houses. The volcano came like that and no one knew. It spewed for days. He, and he being Eddie, explained how his mother died soon after because her big heart was torn right out of her. There there was nothing inside to keep her alive. At 55 years old, she fell asleep one evening and didn't wake up. It occurred to Eddie that he was talking to Tito like he hadn't talked to anyone in years. It felt good, like putting down a heavy suitcase he'd been carrying. Mother was full of tears. Nothing worse than dying when you're alive. I'm glad in some ways she's gone. And then he kind of goes on to say, well, no, that's not really true. A day didn't pass when he didn't think about his mother. Tito listened and nodded. Dying while you're alive is a terrible thing. A lot of people live like that. He told Eddie he was brave. You're a fighter. You'll do OK. Most people live their lives like a sentence. You know what you want and I'm sure you'll get it. And he goes on to say, I know what I want. I died twice and talks about that. But I mean, that is just filled for me with such insight that so many people do live their life like a sentence. And there is nothing worse than a living death where you're not doing that. I do love that line putting down a heavy suitcase he'd been carrying. And, you know, that's about the importance of sharing and speaking with others. The weight of whatever it is that's weighing you down instantly becomes lighter. It's a wonderful piece. I hope I've kind of interpreted it. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I think that is probably at the core of the book. You know, this it's about being alive. It's about reaching for things. And in some ways it's about overreaching because they don't, they go for something bigger than they can handle. All of them in their own way. Yeah. They're overreaching. Eddie's very much about feeling alive and being alive and seizing your life and making of it. Yeah. And interesting in that passage, he goes on to explain that he died twice, once malaria and the other time A plane crash. Yes, I knew it was something very dramatic. And I think that's also really interesting, you know, again, from speaking to people and reading about people who survive and thrive in life. It's rather unfortunate. I think there are some amazing people that I have come across who have had something devastating happen from be it a brain injury to going blind to tragically losing all family members to suddenly find a purpose and a meaning and they grab life by the balls for want of any other phrase and I always think it's somewhat sad it's amazing that people and they're the survivors that's generally how people survive these terrible things and as humans we're very adaptive and we have that capacity but what strikes me is the sadness that we have to wait for something terrible like that to happen yeah and we think we have time we think we have so much time and we don't we don't have that time you know it's when something like that happens and you think oh my god we don't have all the time we thought we had and then it's now we have to seize the day seize the day yeah and I wish I say it over and I've (laughs) said it lots of times I'm at the age where I've lived longer than I've left to live and thankfully I see that as a positive a little spur to kind of go go on girl you gotta go for it you make the most of it I just wish we understood that at an earlier point point in our lives that we kind of appreciated what we have so fortune amanda smith is a fabulous read it is set in trinidad as i believe well your other books are tobago trinidad they're set in that region yeah i put my characters in both places and it's a place that i've loved and wanted to write about so i should explain then to listeners you have a very strong connection with trinidad your mother was trinidadian And I read one of your interviews and you said that your mom took you to Trinidad for long summers when you were a child. And 
in one interview I read and I thought it was really quite interesting was that every time you arrive in Trinidad it's like coming home but when you're there you still feel like an outsider. Yeah no that's very true. I felt like almost as if when I live here so I think when I was young before I found my tribe you know I was living in Yorkshire which Yorkshire's a wonderful place but I never felt much of a sense of belonging or I didn't have any family there or really friendships grew but they weren't people I stayed in touch with so it was a bit like living in black and white you know and then when I arrived in Trinidad it was Technicolor right okay everything was alive and everything was lit and everything was saturated with color and big things seemed to come from that place for me my strong relationships with family and the landscape itself really affected me I found it it moved me you do write about it like throughout the book and there is that sense in every scene of the country teeming with life, every part of it, the soil, the ground. This is around Eddie hopes to find his fortune drilling for oil. So there is not this passive drilling. The land, the ground, the earth fights back in certain ways. It's almost like a tug of war. And there's a lovely weaving of different cultures within Trinidad. So as I said at the start, I had very little knowledge of Trinidad. And so I went and educated myself a little bit more about the indigenous populations, which was, I believe, the Caribs and the Arawaks. But now you really have about a third of the population stems from the East Indies and about a third from African descent and then the rest very much mixed. And I love that you said a few moments ago that Trinidad is technicolor. Often it's called the rainbow country because it has such a diversity of demographics cultures, religions. And tell me, do they all live harmoniously? No. (laughs) This is a podcast and you can't really see faces, but there was a raising of the eyes and an opening of the mouth. (laughs) But I'm curious and I'm putting my hands up to my ignorance. So I would imagine there's poverty, economic divides. There's, you know, kind of rich and poor. It is a very complicated place because on the surface of things, Trinidadians just get on with everybody you know they do seem to have a they're a harmonious people they are religious people they have strong faith whatever their beliefs are it is in some ways it's a very united country in some ways and in other ways they're also very patriotic so when you get Trinis who live I call them Trinis, you know, you, you know, you get Trinis in, in England who get together, you know, there's a real strong connection and bonding. You know, I met a Trinidadian friend this morning, hearing that accent, just getting into that kind of everything is easy, cool, breezy, you know, there is yeah. a sense of it being very laid back and they are kind of laid back people in some ways, but there are politically, there's a very strong black leadership and then a strong Indian leadership. And so they'd be like the two majority groups, about 33% in each. Yeah, and there's that 1% white. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a real mixing now. I think when I was growing up, there was a the sort of the whites probably kept more to themselves. Now I feel there's much more of a kind of mixing in of people, but there is a strong, um, there's a lot of poverty there too, some very wealthy people. And there's a lot of corruption. So, you know, I don't always feel so safe there. Right. Okay. And you do, you actually have written about that in one of your other books. Kind of easy. Yes. And it's, was it a friend of yours or a relative of yours was attacked? Yeah, we had that um, in our family. My great grandfather was murdered 
he was murdered. So yeah. that's what you've used for the topic of your first novel, Blackstone, which oh, I, there's so many things now. So your first novel was recommended by Oprah as one of her reads, which just is incredible in itself. Incredible endorsement. How did that make you feel, first of all? Because this was your first novel. That was my first novel. That was a, so it was an Oprah Winfrey summer read. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it was one of the 25 books you can't put down for that summer. Which was great. And it was, a, but, and it was also at the time it was shortlisted for the, you know, outstanding literary work for the NAACP, which yes. was a things, you know, because I probably never write that book now for all kinds of reasons. It was a mixed race voice. It's appropriation. I do find that very, very interesting. I mean, that's what writers do, full stop. They appropriate other people's stories. They have the gift to tell. And even if they do make mistakes or tell things in a different way, that starts a conversation. Yeah, no, I agree with you to a point, but I think, you know, I'm doing that from a place of privilege. You know, I'm doing yes. that from a very different place. And, and I can, in some ways, you know, I used to work as an actor. In terms of inhabiting another character, you know, that that's what you do as an actor. But I can see now, I wouldn't choose to do that in writing a novel from that. From okay. If somebody mixed race, I don't think I have any right, actually. I wouldn't feel good about it. I still stand by the book because I think it's well written and of its time. It was, you know, it was a strong piece of work. And I felt that I had all the ingredients and the right at that point in my life to write about that because it was about displacement. It was about yes. a young woman who didn't really know where she belonged. It was about the way she used her beauty as a kind of currency. So it's written in the first person. So I think right. if I wrote that in third person now, it would be acceptable. Right. Okay. But I think as a first person narrative, and it absolutely works and it works as a story. And I think I did her complete justice, but I wouldn't do that now. OK. And I've got into some, I was discussing this recently with a friend who said that there was a, when I wrote A Kind of Eden, you know, the way that I described some of the characters who weren't white. And, you know, I was describing them in a way that wasn't generous or I got slated for that. I just wonder how can we explore issues how can you write about a fiction character if all your fiction characters have to be politically correct? Because we don't have a world where everybody is politically correct. So in order to even highlight those issues, you have to have a character who's not politically correct. You have to have a character who describes people disingenuously. In this book, Fortune, you have people from all callings and walks of life. And if you're writing from a voice perspective you have to give that character's perspective not yours and you can't put caveats in all the time oh, but I think that's also to do with the reader I know when I wrote this book I was very mindful of something that the editor said to me when he initially read it he liked it but he said that it's almost as though I'd written it in a colorblind way right because the characters that weren't the non-whites so the grace character who becomes Eddie's helper yes or maid they'd have called them a maid at that time but she was much quieter when I wrote her and I was also very mindful of even though I understand and can I think reasonably well I can write the dialect but I wrote it in sort of straight English because I was worried about getting it wrong so okay I've been very careful and and he said to me that you have to and it was very helpful because it was almost a sort of story where those voices needed to be heard a bit. And I had to do it with some sensitivity. So I wrote the Indian character, the Chatterjee character. I really, I read around some strong Caribbean Indian authors 
and tried to kind of really get that right. It's a minefield. I mm. so I did get that right, I think, in the end. And I but I was very careful. I was careful with all the black characters that I I just had to be really sensitive because yeah. I know what we're dealing with right now. And there is a conversation to be had because we're even talking about that now, you know, like yes. the fact that I got it right. The yeah. fact that there's no controversy here. And I haven't had any backlash. There's been no trouble. But, you know, even my agent, my own agent said to me, you're going to have a job getting this published in America and you probably won't get it done because no one will be interested in reading a book about the Caribbean by a white writer. Right. You're, you're going to struggle. And I expected some, even now, I expected some kind of backlash. And it hasn't happened. It's interesting. I may alluded to the fact that your own life story influences your writings and the choice of the subjects that you write about and your mother was Trinidadian your father was a jazz musician from Sligo Mm -hmm. and you grew up in the UK holidayed a lot in Trinidad and so that impacts hugely on your sense of identity and what I think is interesting is that you spoke about kind of alluding to you're talking to your Trinidadian friends that you just met up with and how they're fabulous and you know they're very particular spirit and what I was thinking at the time as you were saying that you know we have a huge diaspora of Irish people across the globe and what I found my own siblings left and went to live in the states and I remember thinking I literally live 400 yards from where I grew up. I travel for work, but I have not. I have not explored the world. My parents are both Irish. I'm going back very long way. I mean, one set of great grandparents did emigrate and spend time, you know, live in Argentina around the time of the famine. But then they kind of came back. So I'm very Irish, true and true. So that part of my identity, I've never sort of struggled with. And I actually don't see it as a huge part of my identity. I don't particularly see myself as an Irish person. I'm more into the humanity of people and connecting with people. And that's easy for me to say because I have no conflict of identity. Now, what I have found with a lot, and I am generalizing here, so forgive me, but I certainly found it in my own family, that as soon as Irish people move abroad, they become more Irish than the Irish themselves. And it's a sense of identity comes in. I would imagine that happens with Trinidadians with people you know across the globe and so I was very conscious sort of going into reading this book of my own biases my own stereotyping of Trinidadians and I think we all have that and I think that books like these are fabulous that's why I love them they help me explore and highlight my own biases that I may not have time to just oh I'll read about that culture but because I'm reading this book I go oh oh I didn't know that oh I must read a little bit more and I think that does really well anyway talk to me a little bit about your identity and your rather I suppose it's a colorful kind of beginning in life really isn't it your mom came to university in Ireland she came to boarding school in Dublin which people did you know in those days you sent your children away and you may not see them for some time. They come back as summers. When are we talking about in terms of your mother having come to boarding school in Ireland? I guess she would have come there in 1960. Right. So she went to boarding school in Dublin. And I think she was not thriving in Trinidad. I think she was quite naughty. So my grandmother would have wanted her to come here and maybe get the nuns to straighten her out a bit. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, just the fact that she's been sent to boarding school, she was from a relatively well-off family. I mean, I think they were okay. They weren't particularly well-off. They were okay. 
but they did travel, you know, so they had enough money to travel. I think my grandfather, who worked on the oil refiner, actually, in Trinidad, he had a certain number of trips, I think, or passages. That was part of his salary, was that they were oh, giving a passage yes. to England every year on the boat, on the ship. Yeah. So he would, they would have done that. But then she came to boarding school and she was there... But only in the summers could she go home. So she would go with her friend to Sligo during the holidays. And that's where she met my father. Right. So she met my father, who was 10 years older than her. Ah, right. And so she was only a teen. Yeah. So she was 16, 15, 16 when she met him. <gasps> so he was 25, 26 again, something yeah. that would be hugely frowned upon now. Yeah. And then she married him at 18. Mm. And persuaded my grandmother that that was the right thing for her. And they came over and they went to Sligo and they saw her get married and wished her well. And she stayed in Sligo town, you know, and lived above the chemist, her father-in-law's shop. And she lived there with my dad. But of course, she started to miss home mm. long before the Irish weather got to her. I'm not surprised, and Sligo. <laughs> and in Sligo, so she would go home, but you didn't really just go for a couple of weeks, you know, you'd go for a few weeks, which would then turn into months, and then she stayed longer and longer and longer, and I think she found, you know, she'd have, my grandmother would whisk her up, take the children off her, and, you know, she'd have help at home, so my mum could just go off to the beach and or go to the pool. Be or a young woman again, young rather woman. than a young mother. I suppose, you know, it wasn't that unusual to be married at 18 back in the day. Sometimes I, I stop and think that my mother's missed so many moments of my life because she went to live there again when I was just 17. So she went back after living in England for a chunk of time. And in fact, her story was Tito's. You know, I use that in the novel where I describe the shape of the island, you know, being like the tiger skin. That was actually my mother when she was, I remember she was living in England, she was quite unhappy here. And she went to see a handwriting expert. You know, these people who can interpret your handwriting. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. She went to see this person, she, you know, my mum's good fun, you know, she'd be up for doing something like that. She went along and, and the lady who was interpreting looked at it and said, I cannot get anything from your writing, anything at all, apart from this drawing of an apple core. And my mother said, that's not an apple core. That's a map of Trinidad. Oh, my goodness. And then, you know, so she was always in her to go back, wanting to go back and stay and stay and stay. And so when I was 17, I just turned 17, we were there on holiday and she just didn't come back. <gasps> so this is something I wanted to ask you, but just to backtrack for our listeners. So your mum met your dad, who was a jazz musician at 18. They married. Obviously, she was homesick. He was traveling a lot and decided that family life wasn't for him. So the marriage didn't work out. So your mum then moved with you and you have a sibling. Yeah, my older brother. Older brother. And over to the UK. And so you did the bulk of your growing up in the UK. So she's only about 25 at this point. And then rather strikingly, as you said, well, all I had read now, I understand you went to Trinidad and she didn't come back. So I had read it as your mum went back to live in Trinidad. And so what I wanted to ask you was, did you have a choice in that matter? Was there an option for you to stay in Trinidad? Did you actively choose that you wanted to go back to the UK? What way did that work? Clearly your mum in her head, because she was so independent at 16, obviously figured, well, you're old enough now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the baton gets passed on, you know, and it's right. And I think I was quite grown up and she had me at 22. So we have a good relationship. We're like friends. Right. I was a young mum and I adored her. So we'd go shopping and do nice things together. And I think I was probably quite grown up for her. 
her sister lived in England. So her sister lived in Leeds. And I knew that I wanted to do my A-levels at an A-level college. So I said to her, I'm going to be going to do that. And I will stay with your sister while I do those A-levels. And she was kind of, well, you know, I don't really want to come back. But she didn't really talk to me about it. Wow. So you made the decision and you made the arrangement that you would you would stay with the aunt, who is described as a very liberal aunt. So how did that play out? Did that make you more mature or did it make you take advantage? I liked having freedom, but I think my aunt was, she wasn't maternal. Right. She's not particularly nurturing. She's much more, she's got older she is, but, you know, she had a, her own challenges. I mean, she was gay, you know, at that time that was quite difficult. Wow. Yes. When I was young, I remember I was about 13. I remember we used to go and see her. Again, she was only 16 years older than me. Mm. So would she have gone to boarding school with your mum? Different no. boarding school. But did she go to boarding school in the UK? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. She was a high achiever. Mm. And then she was my mum's baby sister. And they were very, very close. So my brother and I, when we were little in Ireland, she would come over from boarding school and they would just have a nice time. And we were very close to hers. You know, I'd see her a lot when we lived in Yorkshire. So you were her family when she was so far from Trinidad. So Easter holidays, Christmas holidays, those things would have all been spent with your mum and you. And she was impressive. You know, she rode a motorbike. I mean, she had Harley. She was very fine boned and slim. And so she's not sort of doesn't look big and strong, but she'd had a big motorbike. Yeah. You know, I remember when I was about 13 going to her house one day and she said, I went into the kitchen and one of her friends was there. And it was a very sort of quite hippy dippy kind of liberal. And she was quite political, much more so than my mother and a real feminist. And this woman was typing in the kitchen and um, the woman said to me, what's your name? And I said, my name is Amanda. And she said, and what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, well, I don't I don't know, but I want to be an actress. Okay. And she looked at me and a sort of shadow must have passed over my face. And I said, but I'm worried that I won't be very good at it. And she said, well, if you're not good at it, you probably won't want to do it because we tend to not like doing things that we're not good at. That's very astute. Yeah. Which is very astute. And she was spot on. Now that woman was Jeanette Winterson. She was typing up oranges are not the only fruit. Oh my goodness. (laughs) And I didn't really know who she was at the time, but my aunt had people coming through her house that were interesting, that challenged me. You know, she would always challenge me, which meant that she wasn't necessarily the kind of mum that would wrap you up in blankets and make you feel all safe and yummy and baking cakes. You know, she would tell me to go and travel and do things and push me to be adventurous. Right. So in a sense, she was really good for me and I adored her. But I think in those years when I was 17, it was tough not having my mum I didn't have that safe mummy place. You think when you're that age that you're old and you could do. Yeah, but then something happens and the first thing you want, I mean, all you need is a bout of diarrhea and you want your mum. <laughs> you want your mum. And, and I think because my aunt thought of me as being sort of more like a friend that when I did, I remember once crying, you know, after Christmas, just like, you know, I wish my mum wasn't so far away because you'd have one phone call. It would be 60 pence a minute to phone Trinidad. 
this folks is way before mobile phones and any, yeah. you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I remember when my own siblings emigrated to the United States, you know, it would be a phone call a week. And yeah. at that, there was a delay on the line and it was just really impossible to have any sort of meaningful conversation because you kept echoing and talking on top of each other. Well, I'd wait for the letters, you know, the Blue Air Mail. I remember once getting upset and my aunt said to me, don't make your mum feel guilty. And I remember thinking, but she's my mum, you know, and mm. and now I have a nine-year-old, you know, that I cannot imagine at 16 being that far from her, you know, but because I guess, as you said, you know, my mum had been far from her mother at 16 and had become a mother. Very young. 19. She didn't really see it in that way. And I talk, you know, I was full of it. You know, I was like, oh, I'm fine. I'm cool. But actually I wasn't. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So you had this, your mum gone. Did you maintain contact with your father at all or was he just gone out of the picture? Or... I did and he was nearby. I mean, he was around. Was so... he in the UK? Yeah. And he lived, I mean, there was a certain point where we lived about 15 minute walk from each other's houses, which was great. So I, he was there, but he was just not a father that, you know, he wasn't my idea of a good father. You know, he was a rebel. You know, he was a bit of a hippie. He didn't want responsibilities, particularly. He was free spirited. You know, it wasn't even about what he could give me. I remember when I was in my 20s and I'd been living in New York for a while, I got back to England and I, I called him and I said, I don't even have keys for your house. You know, I don't even have a set of keys to get in your house. You know, you haven't given me a home. Yeah. He sent me the next day keys to his house. He probably just never even entered his head. Never entered his head. But what it meant was that neither myself or my brother had a place that we could feel. And your brother stayed here in the UK. Yeah. So that we could go back to, that we could leave our stuff if we went on a trip yes. where we knew we could have Christmas, where we knew we could return, you know, where we could. So you had no home in a sense. No home in that way. And when your mother went and stayed in Trinidad, did she live with her family or did she have a home there? Or was it ever made clear that this will be your home? Yeah, no, she absolutely did. And then, you know, she did meet somebody who she's still with, you know, who's she'd been with for 30 years, who she's happy with. And absolutely, she gave me she would always, always, my, her home is my home. There have been periods of time when I've gone back and lived with her again. Right. And I've had 
three years or two years of living back in that place again. But I think when I look back, and this is probably really terrible kind of basic psychology, but I can see where the holes would have been in the early years that later there's a price and those holes, I have to go back and fill them however I can, where I may have slipped through And, you know, you find your tribe, don't you? You know, at some point I found my tribe. You've said that twice. So who is the tribe that you have found now? Well, I think I was quite lucky. When I was 18, 19, I found a small group of friends that were very, you know, strong. I'm still in touch with them now. And just when I was doing my A-levels and they were very kind of interesting crowd. Then when I moved to London, I then found another group of people, again, through acting and through other things I've and those people are still in my life so I think people who have a strong connection with them perhaps who were a bit lost as I was you know who had similar precarious beginnings and found their way yeah do you think that because you lack those foundations it actually makes you treasure and value and nurture friendships more carefully than somebody who perhaps has a secure background. And so they become your family. Your family are those whom you live with. And I know I even have one friend who every year I say to him, you know, he says, oh, I always spend Christmas with his family. Now his mom is still alive and he has siblings. But as a gay man who's now in his mid to late 60s, where being gay was criminal in his early youth, his family are his other gay friends and they spend Christmas together because so many of them had families who rejected them, etc. So they have become their family. And I think that's kind of a really interesting perspective. Personally, I'm completely alienated from my blood relatives. I have absolutely no contact with any blood relatives other than my own children. And that's good for me. So I do think it's interesting, you know, when I come across, it's a choice I wouldn't have liked to make, but it's a choice that I came to a point in time where I go, okay, for my sanity, for my health, this is the only way that this can work. And it has worked very well for me. And then there's other people, Lem Sisse was a guest on the show. He spent his whole life searching to find out who his mom was. And I had a sister-in-law whose mom died when she was three and the father didn't know what to do with the eight children. So he put them all in a home, a school and went to the States to send money back. And I remember her saying to me, I thought there was nothing worse than having no parents and then I met your family (laughs) now we're from perfectly middle class you know from a socioeconomic perspective it all seems perfectly fine but it actually wasn't so I think probably books and things like that and films they can put forward this myth that everybody has perfect families and that's the best way to grow up or else they can actually open the door to and provide comfort by sharing those other kinds of stories. And that's what I love about podcasting is that whilst we can chat about your book, we can really explore everything more because I'm always interested why writers write certain things. I want to come back to your acting at some point and what you did until you eventually became a writer. You based your central character on your great grandfather, who was an investor in the original Dome Oil Well, which really is ultimately a tragedy that this book bills too so obviously that was your mother's grandfather Grandfather. yeah and I'm interested to know so how far back does your heritage in Trinidad go I think that probably from the about the 1850s so there would have been a kind of um there was a Scottish contingency so the Scottish I think he was from Berwick 
would have come, I think, in 1840 or sometime around there. And then my grandmother was Portuguese. So there was some Scottish, Portuguese, French. So my mother's mother and father were both Trinidadian. Their parents were Trinidadian. And then I think it would have one was anyway, some came from the Caribbean. And then before that, they came from France. A real mixture. But the character that I based this on was um, Tito is based on my great grandfather, who they called him Allah, that his nickname was Allah because he thought he was God, you know. Um, mm. He was a real entrepreneur and he was quite successful, had a supermarket, had the, a hotel. He was a very good business mind and he did well for himself, but he did put money into this, um, you know, at the time there were all these exploratory drilling. drilling down in the south of Trinidad. So he put some money in there and on the night of the dome explosion, he was out of town. So he missed it. Right. So otherwise he would have been there and he'd have died, you know, mm. It's interesting, the evolution of this book, you wanted to write about an explosion and you were looking at the 7-7 bombings in London and then your mum told you this story. And so yeah. yet again, then you were drawn back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And she, because her partner, it was his uncle, was also very involved in the Dome. And so there was a connection then. And again, there were family members who were lost in the fire. So Right. So this is very close to home, really. Yeah, there were these personal connections and these big characters started to, what I don't know about them, I would then imagine mm. and that the writer does, you know, you kind of build a, a story around an idea of somebody and then I start to imbue them with all kinds of characteristics and then they become real to me. I guess they were, um, I had a few of them in place and I was working also on, a, I had a photograph which I've used in is actually included in the back of this book. Yes, uh, there's some photos in the back of the book. There's a yeah. woman walking with a man with a white hat and a white suit. So he is my great-grandfather, in fact. Right. And the woman next to him is his daughter. But I kind of, when I was writing it, I imagined him to be Tito and I imagined her to be Ada. That's where I began writing the Ada sections from that photograph. They yeah, described. it's fabulous, you know, and it's interesting to see that process about how it's just a little germ of an idea. I mean, I wonder where your idea to write about an explosion came from, though. <laughs> Who, knows? Exactly. Who knows? That's the one that just kind of yeah. exploded into your consciousness. So you alluded to it there that you had made friends through acting. So you're 17, 16, 17, you do your A-levels. You're living with an aunt. You have no sort of central home. Where do you go to next? What happens next in your life? Because it's a long way until your first novel. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing that even as I'm talking to you that occurs to me is that it wasn't even so much what I didn't have was, and, and sometimes these things aren't good, but I didn't have a sort of father figure or a strong directive force in my life. I had nobody guiding me particularly. So my aunt would sort of trust me that I knew what I was doing and didn't want to interfere too much. So at the age of, I did my A-levels in English and drama, and then I applied for drama school and I got in, but then I couldn't get a grant. Which drama school? It was the Academy of Live and Recorded Arts. Okay. Which I wanted to go to because they did film. It was the yes. only that, that did film. So I joined a theatre company and I traveled around Europe with them for about a year. And then I joined another theater company who were becoming an equity company. 
So they gave me an equity card, which was the big thing. Really important because there's certain theatre houses, etc., and films that you can't work on unless you are a member of a union. But it's one of those catch-22 things. You can't become a member of a union until you show that you have worked professionally as an actor. So as a starting out actor, I remember this. It's this dilemma. How do I get this? And then you think it's so huge to get your equity card and then sure. You think all the parts will flow. <laughs> exactly. When I look back, I can see that I was quite focused. So I, I left, I was living in Yorkshire at that time, and then I moved to London, and then I got bits and pieces. I then met and fell in love with somebody who was a, he was much older than me, obviously looking for a father figure, you know. It's so obvious you now when I look back. Not in hindsight, I presume yeah, it's obvious. Not course. at the time. Yeah, and at the time he was a director, in fact, an underwater filmmaker director. So he did wow. lots of adverts for, do you remember those sort of British gas swimming underwater, the baby swimming underwater? Yes, I do remember. Yes, amazing. Anyway, so that was his work. And, and at the time I was going for lots of castings. I was doing commercials. Yes, and which is bread know, and butter money for actors, basically. Doing that kind of thing. And then, um, and then there was a couple of jobs that came in and he was quite a controlling man. And really steered me away from there was a couple of big jobs that came in and I remember not doing them because (gasps) you know that I anyway that's another story altogether but a very big character he was you know and I I think at the time that was another sliding door moment where I I was offered a big job you know an acting job a tv job and I didn't take it because I thought it would sort of jeopardize the relationship so now you've got a taste which is interesting (laughs) now you've got a taste of what it's like having parents (laughs) who want to control your life and dictate your life I think that's rather interesting that you had this freedom that perhaps you didn't see as a freedom you saw it as a no I don't have any support I don't have any and Mm. then you go for this one where oh my god I'm totally constrained and it's so funny you know it's a form of rebellion you know so after that then what do you think sort of helped you sort of survive through these kind of years because you're on your own you don't really have you're not totally on your own you have friends I suppose I had a very strong network of friends and I lived in Notting Hill Gate. I lived in a great flat with a friend, you know, hardly paid any rent. I had a really lovely few years of lots of just fun. Great. And by then I was sort of single. And and then there was a certain point where I did a TV show. It was The Bill. I remember doing The Bill and I did another TV show, which was called All in the Game. It was a TV drama. And I saw myself and I thought, oh, my God. God, I am terrible. Oh no! I shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> I should not be doing this. I need to get some training. So I basically I left London and all my lovely friends and people, and I went to New York to train because right. I thought I need to go and do some training. And I did. I went and I learned. You know, I worked with a really good drama teacher, and I I did get better because I would get the jobs because I look good. But then when it came to doing, to doing it now and again I did it really well but there were times when I just thought I should have gone to drama school why did nobody tell me you know I'm right. just everything on in- instinct 
And sometimes it worked. And, and sometimes that worked, but you do have to understand. So, so I, when I turned down drama school, I had already trained from the age of eight with the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. And I had a qualification as a drama teacher. So I'd been learning about all of those things for my entire childhood, really, and loved it and all the rest. But I want to spend all my time learning more and yeah. kind of doing it. And it does help to go to a drama school because that can give you work and jobs can spring from that. Um, also, you get better at your craft don't yes you? yes practice. unlike writing you can write without anybody and basically need you know a notebook and a pen to write and practice your craft but with acting you need to be yeah the theater or... you need yeah you need to be working I mean you can practice scenes and stuff at home but you learn so much that's why I did initially I did an awful lot of student films to learn my tv craft because I was trained as a theater actor which is very different they're different skills so your book is called fortune and i know there was something else on page 71 that i wanted to refer back to in the book um i thought it was a very astute comment it's about catherine and it just says in those early days she was tough in a way that people who are hurting sometimes can be and i underlined it because it just kind of went oh how true is that and i wondered did life toughen you up early life did you find that no it didn't I don't think it did. I don't think it did. And I think I've been very lucky in that I felt most of the people that I've had around me, I've managed to meet some very lovely people and been loved and been looked after, you know, in friendships. And just today I said to somebody that I'm a softie, you know, I have not hardened and I know I haven't hardened. And I'm glad that I. Yeah, that's good. I think I've got stronger through all this I'm definitely I haven't got hard yeah strength and hardness are kind of two different things hard is brittle actually and you know if that kind of breaks then what's behind you know whereas stronger you know is something that can bend and flex with things but you've said you've met some really lovely people and given that the book is called fortune and talking about chance and fate you met your husband on a tube I did yeah we'd, known, we'd actually met each other many years before in fact when I was with the director really yeah when I was 24 I was only 24 and he had come to the house to talk to this chap about working with him because he worked in the business as well so we met then and then we saw each other a couple of times after I'd broken up with this man and you know we liked each other but we were off doing different things. He went off to film school and I was off, I went off to New York and we lost touch. And it was um, by chance. I remember I had a hangover and I was supposed to be at work. It was the 23rd of December. And I thought I should get to work, but actually my head was pounding. And I thought I, I had a voucher for Waitrose, the shop to go yes. and, um, for 25 pounds. And, and I thought I'm going to my aunt's for Christmas, same aunt. And I'm going to go and buy some Italian biscuits. I had it in my head that I wanted some Italian biscuits. Some, you know, those little round sort of amaretto. I do, you were craving sugar after your hangover. Exactly. (laughs) So I jumped on the tube and instead of going to the waitress that I would usually go to, which was in Marlebone, I went to a totally different one in Finchley Road. So I jumped on the train, went up there, got my tin of biscuits, a big red tin, ran down to get on the train. And a woman was trying to chat to me. She was kind of annoying. She was sort of chatting in my ear. And as the train pulled up, I thought, I'm not getting on that train with her because my head is hurting. And I ran down the track, down the the end of the train, jumped in the last carriage. I looked up and he was there. That's mad. 
Yeah, it was mad. And I had a black hat on. I remember I was wearing a black hat with a red question mark on it. <laughs> so he saw the hat and he saw me and I was wearing a long green. It was a beautiful coat, actually. It was an emerald green velvet coat. It was quite dramatic. Wow. And he looked at me and he put out his arms and he said, I've looked for you. No. Yes. Oh, how romantic. Yeah. Oh, my goodness, my heart. <laughs> yeah. So he doesn't remember it this way, but this is what I remember. Oh, it doesn't matter. Your truth is your truth. Exactly. And then he came over and he gave me a hug. And then he said, we've got the train together up till um, Oxford Circus. And then he gave me his card and he said, let's speak later today. And we did. And then that was that, really. Wow. How does he remember it? He remembers it that I think I looked up and he said, Amanda. And I said, Lee. And that's how he then came to right. us. But he did say, I've looked for you because he had, because he knew that I'd been acting, but I also had a different acting name. Ah, right. He'd been Googling me, but unable yeah. to find me. And that, you know, it was 2003, I guess, you know, in those days. But he had a photograph that he kept of me all those years. Wow. Where we'd met and gone for a walk with friends and it was just him and I was this photograph and I also had the same photo ah yeah there you go it's so interesting and so now so you became a mum then at the other end of the scale to your own mum and was that sort of by design or just the way life panned out that you met and fell in love later than your mum will say or yeah I didn't have even when I was with Lee I didn't have any interest in having a child at all right my mum used to say, oh, I hope one day you'll experience what I experienced and I think you'd be a lovely mum. And I was just, oh, please go away. You know, I had no interest whatsoever. And then when I was 40, I just absolutely made a beeline for boots and I wanted to buy folic acid. I just thought I have to have a child. It wasn't even an emotional decision. It was a biological. It took my feet from under me. I mean, it was so strong. And I came home with these mum-to-be tablets and I put them on the kitchen sink. And he came home that day and he said, uh, I, do you think we should have a chat about this? <laughs> At least he noticed. Yeah, he noticed. He noticed. And then yeah. he, he would have been okay without, I think, without having a family. And then I think I was 40. And I thought, I have to do this. Wow. It was not negotiable. I and did it become a bit of an obsession? I think in the sense that I have a real white coat syndrome. So I was, you know, any sort of medical procedures, I would just get very jittery, very nervy around doctors. And I remember I was unpacking something and um, a box, I, th I can't remember how long I had it, but I was looking through a box of papers and I found this card that my aunt had given me the same aunt you know who's been yeah. really all this time and this card said every day do something that scares you yes 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 you know remember that one so I picked up the phone that minute picked up the phone and I rang the doctor and I said I'd like to talk to you about fertility can I come and see you and that was that and within three years, I mean, it took three years, I was pregnant then. I knew I wouldn't have IVF. I knew I wouldn't do anything invasive. And then I was fortunate enough to get pregnant naturally when I was 43. And do you have a boy or girl? Yeah. A girl. He's nine. Wow. Wow. Lovely. I've talked to you for so long, actually, the time just flies by, but I can't leave without, because I've alluded to it so many times, I can't leave without finding out when and how you then became a writer. Okay, I'll try and make this quite tight. Yes. 
Yeah. So after being in New York, I felt quite battered. So I went back to Trinidad, which is what I did every year. I'd go to Trinidad and I'd spend a month with my mum and she'd always nurture me, you know, when I went back, she'd always give me the best, you know, lots of fruit and really look after me, encourage me to rest. She's brilliant like that. My mum, very, very caring and nurturing. So I went back typically to do this again, to get fit, to get brown, to get feeling great, to come back to go for all the castings that now I had some training and a bit more confidence. Anyway, I got there and I was exhausted and I stayed for a month and then I delayed my ticket. I stayed another month and then I delayed my ticket and I stayed another month. Wow. I was sad. You know, I'd broken up with a boyfriend who was a kind of Irish boyfriend who'd right. you know, take me back to Ireland a lot. And I was very, very sad. So I was probably slipping into a depression. And my mum was brilliant because she never said a word. She never said, when are you going? Your ticket's expiring. Yeah. She just gave me the fruit, gave me a place to be. And I stayed three years. Did you really? I stayed three years. And it was um, during that time I started writing. I had a laptop that somebody had given me to write some stories. And I'd, I'd always been writing. I just started writing a bit more seriously. And around that time, there was a guy who was running workshops in Trinidad, creative writing workshops, who was a journalist, poet, creative writing teacher, and just a brilliant, brilliant writer. And he was running workshops. My aunt came for Christmas and she said, I think you should go to these workshops. Serious about writing, you should go. And as a gift, I'm going to pay for them for you. Oh, lovely. So off you go. So I didn't really want to do it. I think I was very down in the dumps. Can I ask you what kind of age you were at this point? I was not young. I was 28. Oh, that's young. 29. Yeah, that's still very young. 28, 29. And I went to the workshops and he was a brute. You know, he was a very direct, super smart you know, he tore apart somebody's work in the group. And I came out and I said to my mum, I am never going back again. He was such a brute. Anyway, I went back the following week and I said to him, whatever homework you give everybody, triple mine. Give me three times as much. So he said, OK. So I would do the work and then I would see him before class and he would go through it. And he became my kind of mentor. Wow. And he sat across from me one day and he said, listen, kid, he said, you have the thing. Oh, wow. Now, if you have the thing, you must use the thing. But you haven't been using the thing. So in another few years, you think that you should get married, have a family, get your fancy car, get your matching towels. He said, but you know what you'll do? You'll mash it up. You'll do it and you'll mash it up. And then you'll get married again. And you'll have a bigger car and a bigger house. You'll have more kids. And then when your looks have gone and you're in your 50s, Everybody will want to run from you at parties because you'll be annoying and exhausting. So I suggest that you buckle down and you use the thing and you start working. Very interesting. Now, I don't like what he said about being in your 50s and nobody. But what he's getting at is what I call it, finding your joy. You know, you haven't found your passion. So therefore, you really have very little to talk about and you become very your world becomes very small. I do think that's what a lot of us are suffering from in the pandemic in a way as well, is not being able to do. But the other thing he also gave me was what he said that in his mind, I'm not saying that he was completely right, but he saw me as a sort of waif. 
that I was untethered. You know, I had no home, I had no sense of roots and no sense of real belonging. So for him, he said, if you make the stories and your work the thing that becomes your home. Yes. That's the thing that will make you feel good and safe. It's not a man. It's not a house. It's not those things. From within you. Yeah. I think we found I was going to end by saying, you know, what piece of advice would you give people on surviving and thriving in life? I think you've just done it there. Absolutely. You know, it's about you know, making that strong. It's your core, isn't it? I mean, people talk about exercising to get your core strong, but it's there's another core, you know. There's yeah, absolutely. Core. There's the, the centre of you that it's not about the things outside. It's about building that and making that strong so that you can then have your place in the world. You have your place within yourself. Yeah. Uh, I say it over and again, you've got to lose yourself to find yourself. So I'm sure you lose yourself in your writing and that's actually when you're most connected to yourself. And I think we do tend to look outwards far too much for happiness and for reasons for living. And yes, having children is a reason for living, but at the end of the day, and at the end of your life, there will always just be you. And that's not a lonely thought. I mean, you can have all the other things, but if you have found something within you, within which you connect, that can be a very fulfilling life. Thank you so much for speaking to me. I didn't even get to talk to you about your wonderful relatives in Sligo, but it's been um, a real pleasure speaking with you, Amanda. Thank you so much. The novel is Fortune by Amanda Smith. I've said this before as well. I love when um, I get to speak to other creative people whose work I've never come across before because it's wonderful. Then I have a back catalogue now to read as well. (laughs) It's like discovering your own little treasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. My name is Sabina Brennan and you have been listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Superbrain is a labour of love, born of a desire to empower people to use their brain to thrive in life and attain their true potential. You can now go ad free on patreon.com forward slash superbrain for the price of a coffee. Please help me reach as many people as possible by sharing this episode. Imagine if we could get to a million downloads by word of mouth alone. I believe it is possible. I believe that great things happen when lots of people do little things. Visit sabinabrennan.ie for the Superbrain blog with full transcripts, links and the like. Follow me on Instagram at Sabina Brennan and on Twitter at Sabina underscore Brennan. Tune in on Thursday for another booster shot from me and on Monday for another fascinating interview with an inspiring guest. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.